All right, welcome back to Fireside Chats. We are so excited that you are here with us for our second episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, Fireside Chats is an offshoot of the Emory University Pre-Health Advising Office, really helping any pre-health students discover unconventional pathways to the healthcare field, amplifying underrepresented voices in the healthcare field, and overall helping students explore different options that they have. So today we have some really amazing other pre-health advising mentors with us. We have Denver, Sabina, and Alex, who are going to be talking with our first official non-Emory pre-health advising office guest, Charlie Lane. But before we introduce Charlie Lane, uh, Denver, Sabina, Alex, do you all want to go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about who you are? Yeah. Um, so my name's Denver, and I am a senior, so graduating May 2022, woohoo, um, majoring in human health, and I'm majoring in French, and I'm on the pre-med track, so you know, ultimately MD or DO is the goal. Um, going to be taking a gap year, hopefully to teach English abroad in a French-speaking country. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited to, to be here and to interview Charlie today. Hi, my name is Sabina. I'm currently a junior. I'm majoring in neuroscience and behavioral biology, and I'm minoring in religion. I'm currently on the pre-med track, but um, my religion minor is actually how we got to know Charlie, so I'm really excited to be on this episode today. Hey y'all, um, my name is Alex. I'm a senior. I'm graduating in 2022, like Denver. Um, and like Sabina, um, I'm majoring in neuroscience and behavioral biology, um, as well as religion um, on a double major. And that's how I got introduced to Charlie. Um, I'm really excited um, to to um, talk to him um, and get his insights in the pre-health journey. Um, I know it has impacted my own pre-health journey um, and how I think about um, becoming are going into medical school, um, so I'm excited to, to talk to him. Yeah, so a little bit about Charlie. We actually all met Charlie in a meditations course we took through the religions department. Um, he came, he spoke more about his own pathway to medicine and how practicing cognitively-based compassion training has really helped him on his journey and informed his decisions. Um, So Charlie Lane served as a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer for six years before starting medical school at Emory University in 2018. Um, He is a yoga and meditation instructor, and in 2020, he completed a certification in cognitively based compassion training, CBCT, which he will speak more about. Um, He has elected to delay medical school graduation for a year to work on a project in medical humanities and quality improvement, which really seeks to create a paradigm shift in the content, context, and culture of medical education to more deliberately train and support the inaction of compassion for self, interprofessional colleagues, and patients. He is undecided on which field of medicine he wants to complete his residency training in, but he is absolutely fascinated by the growing field of trauma-sensitive intervention seeking to reintegrate mind and body. So in the episode today, we will talk more about Charlie Lane's um, journey through being a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer, how meditation and compassion has helped him throughout his years in the Navy, 
and on his path to medicine, and more about his project, really working to unite different professionals in the healthcare field through compassion. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. So one thing I guess we kind of first wanted to ask you, um, so we know that you were in the Navy for six years uh, before you started at Emory. Mm-hmm. And so you're in med school now, but what drove you to, you know, start in the Navy, to join the Navy? Yeah, so my my dad's a... Uh uh, recently retired, I guess five years now he retired. Um, he was a Navy physician. And so I grew up moving ar- around and really enjoyed that lifestyle. Um, and to be honest, had I not experienced it, I, I thought what would have never crossed my mind to, to even apply. Um, but I, as I was applying to college, I was graduating from uh, high school in Okinawa, Japan, and applying to schools in the U.S. and to ROTC programs. Um, and so that's how I, that's how I ended up in the Navy. Um, the submarine service is a, is a whole nother story. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's not so different from medicine, uh, when you're applying to residency in that it's a lot of what you want to go into and then a lot of what they need. Um, and so for the Navy, I didn't want to go into the submarine service, um, but they needed someone to go into, into submarine. So, um, they told me what to do. And when it comes to the Navy, you say, yes, (laughs) (laughs) ma'am. Yeah. Can you, uh, tell us a little bit more about your responsibilities in the Navy? Um, what type of boat, um, if you were in a ballistic sub, um, fast attack guidance missile. Yeah. So I was on a fast attack, uh, submarine, uh, USS La Jolla out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And uh, before you get to your first submarine, you have uh, a little over a year of training that you have to do. So I, uh, in October of 2011, started at Nuclear Power School in Charleston, South Carolina. That's a six-month didactic learning, so a bunch of PowerPoints, all about nuclear engineering, electrical engineering, and mechanical engineering, and how they come together to make a submarine go through the water. Um, And then after that, you go do six months of training either in Charleston or in Saratoga Springs, and that is on a live reactor, starting it up, shutting it down. You have to shadow all the ancillary staff of the uh, of the engine room so the mechanics the electrical operators the reactor operators the um, uh, chemists of the plant and you have to learn what they do Um, and so you do a lot of book learning and then you go out onto the plant and start up the reactor shut it down run some casualty drills uh, and then go back to the books and then learn a little bit more and go back to the reactor so you do that for six months and then there's two months of something called Submarine Officer Basic Course in Groton, Connecticut. Uh, and then after that, you go out to your first submarine. And so I was in uh, Pearl Harbor. And when I got to the boat, your first responsibility is really to get qualified. Uh, even though you've done all this training, every platform's a little different. And so you have to learn the ins and outs of the boat that you're going to be serving on. Uh, and it's a lot of the same stuff, uh, book learning, and shadowing individuals and uh, learning what it is that they do and how they come together to make electricity for the boat and and make propulsion. Uh, 
And all the while that you're getting qualified, uh, I was also a division officer. So I was in charge of the reactor controls division. And they work with all the software and hardware for maintaining reactor safety. And so they run, you know, periodic maintenance. And if something breaks, they're in charge of fixing it. Um, and so I was in charge of about nine sailors. And, you know, a lot of the maintenance that they were doing, I had to, you know, they know much more than I would ever know about this. But my job is to kind of oversee what they're doing, double check their work, and, um, and then also know a little bit more about their personal lives. Like, are they, are they okay at home? Do they... Do they have enough to eat? Are they are they sleeping well, um, and and things like that? Mm. Was was um, worrying or not worrying? Was inquiring about their personal life something like standard that most um, officers or right? Because mm -hmm. that's what's called okay. Officers would yeah. do as well. Or is that something you kind of learned? Like actually made them feel more inclined and built that relationship that I remember you telling us in class was necessary to build a team like you kind of have to foster that close connection and things like that like was that a standard approach yeah <laughs> if you read the uh the manuals about um you know being a naval officer they would say yes mm -hmm. um but just like every organization there are good leaders and not so good leaders um and so some people are a little more focused on on just the facts and just the work and some are a little more concerned about the individuals behind the work. Um, so. Yeah, so um, it sounds like this experience in the Navy, you had to um, learn pretty much everything that was going on in the boat. Um, how is this like comprehensive experience um, translated to how you approach medicine um, and <laughs> kind of the holistic approach to uh, human health? Yeah, that's actually why I've elected to take this year off is I didn't feel like we actually spent enough time getting to know the ancillary roles of healthcare, um, And just this idea that we can be siloed as, as doctors is, is false. Um, in order for anything to happen, you need the phlebotomist, you need the nurses, you need the techs, you need social workers, you need ethicists, chaplains, like all these people that make caring for an individual possible. Um, and when we, when we silo ourselves in the ivory tower of medical school and then go out and learn under uh, residents and attendings, we start to see all the other people that make, it, make healthcare possible, um, but we don't actually learn from them. Um, and so, so now I, I think that's a crucial part of, of being a doctor and, and being an effective doctor. And as I talk to more senior physicians about this, this thought that I've had, they're like, yeah, I didn't realize that I needed to like, it's the nurses that I needed to have a good relationship with in order to, to actually care for the patient. It's the, the phlebotomist who I needed to know what they were doing to actually um, make sure we got labs drawn on time or that I knew how to put in the orders for the labs. Um, but they didn't learn that till residency which is a little late because at that point you're, you're really overwhelmed with, with caring for patients and, and learning your role as, as a part of the care team that, that to learn all of these other things um, I think is, is a, a lot to ask. So I think we should bring that into our, our early medical education. So how do you see like a theory that being implemented? Like at what point and sort of how and is that 
like exactly what you're going to be agreeing to with your year? Yeah, it's it's one component of what I'm looking at this year. And I, in my mind, I think within the first two years, we should be uh, learning from, from all the allied health professionals. Um, so in our um, hematology module, after we learn a little bit about blood analysis, we should then go shadow a phlebotomist, sh see how they draw blood, what it's like to receive an order to draw blood, and then go back to the lab and see the techs analyzing the blood and see what all is going on. So that then when I give an order, uh, you know, in the middle of the night to draw labs, I know exactly what, what that order entails and, and who all is involved in it. And so that's one example. I think some things fit well into the modules that we already have set, like, like phlebotomists and techs. There are other things like um, scrub nurses that I um, that don't fit so well into the first two years, but I don't think that should uh, preclude us from being able to get into the operating room before we are uh, in our clerkship years. Um, I think of all, I was fortunate enough to have spent some time in an operating room in Cambodia before coming here. And so I, I learned a little bit about how to scrub and, and how to hold uh, surgical instruments and, and kind of how the team worked together to, to perform a surgery. But so many of my colleagues and classmates had never been in an operating room. And when you walk in, you have to maintain sterility, right? And that's, that's the scrub nurse's role is to make sure that everyone maintains sterility in, in the operating room. And, and they end up kind of not knowing what to do with their hands and, and where to stand and, and feel uncomfortable. And so they're not so much focused on what's actually going on in the surgery and what they should be learning as medical students and kind of more about like where to be and how to stand. And so if we had instead learned from a, a scrub nurse beforehand, we would know the names of the instruments a little bit better. We'd know how to scrub. We know the ins and outs and the technical details of actually maintaining sterility. And then when we finally get to our clerkships, I think we'd be a little less uncomfortable in the operating room and, and be able to, to focus a little more on what the residents and the attendings are doing in there. Yeah, so um, can you tell us a little bit about the like exact programs or what, what you're going to be doing um, in this year to kind of, you know, um, improve towards this goal of yours of, yeah. of understanding the different professions. Um, and if you see this as kind of a realistic thing that could um, kind of come into a curriculum or be a, be a viable option for future medical students. Yeah. Um, so, again, this is like one part of the project that I'm working on. And right now I'm still in, in the discovery phase of is this something that I alone think is important or are there other students who want to learn this? Are there other educators who think this is important? And so right now we're just holding focus groups um, with educators and, and students we've done so far. Uh, we're in the process of analyzing those focus groups and then my hope is to take what we uncover and go have uh, semi-structured interviews with some leaders in healthcare about, about what we found. Um, and I, I, th I think it is feasible. Um, it's not just me calling for more collaborative uh, training or interprofessional education is, is the official uh, words associated with this idea um, in the Navy, or sorry, in the, in the medical world. In the Navy, we'd call it under instructions. Uh, you stand under instruction under a mechanic, and, and you are under the instruction of this mechanic. 
Um, and like the, the World Health Organization, I think it was in 2017, put out a, a uh, manuscript for more collaborative healthcare and how that's uh, crucial for safety and quality care. Um, and then uh, I'm fortunate in that our Dean of Medical Education really wants to uh, bring more of this collaborative effort in uh, and kind of break down the silos between the PT school, the PA school, the genetic, genetic counseling school, the anesthesiology assistant schools, and just kind of make us work and learn from each other. Um, so I think the feasibility is, is pretty good. Uh, what I think will be difficult is Yes, I think it'll be good to learn from other students, but I think it'd also be really important to learn from other professionals. And right now the workforce is really burnt out and already kind of overburdened. Um, and so to add more to their plate of, oh, can you bring this medical student on as well and teach them what you do every day is asking a lot. And that would require um, time and or financial compensation for, for this extra work um, and that then goes to the business side of, of medicine. Um, and I, I think there's enough of a, a business case to be made for improvements on safety and quality and that overall you would reduce costs in healthcare. Um, but, but we don't have hard numbers uh, to prove that. And so, so how can you convince people to even give this a try? Um, or those of you who don't know, um, Charlie came in and spoke to us in class about this concept called Compassionomics. And uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what that is and where your interest in Compassionomics stem from and how it kind of translates into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. Compassionomics is such an interesting word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think they're, they're, this idea of compassion goes much deeper than, than what we are studying now. But at the same time, the fact that we're studying it and trying to uncover a little bit more about what compassion is, how do we enact compassion, how do we actualize compassion in our daily lives for ourselves, for those around us, we're, we're unpacking a little bit, and that's bringing it more to the scientifically-minded individuals. And so Stephen Treziak and uh, Mazzarelli, I forget his first name, are two doctors who wrote this book, Compassionomics. And they said if genomics is the study of genes, then compassionomics is the study of compassion. And the last, last couple decades has really been this burgeoning field of uh, the compassion sciences, looking at the neuroscience behind compassion and how it's distinct from empathy, um, and uncovering this idea that when we care for others, we also benefit from, from that genuine care and concern. Um, and so when I got to, uh, towards the end of my time in the Navy and was applying to medical school, I was looking for, for different programs out there. And already while I was in the Navy, I relied heavily on, on uh, contemplative yoga practice and meditation practice mm -hmm. to help maintain some semblance of grounding. I always joke, you know, finding ground in a place where there is no ground. <laughs> and um, and it, was, it was really helpful. And I ended up teaching... Uh, some yoga classes in the T.G. Luboyle Bay, uh, which just has these roaring pumps and, um, and a slick floor from all the oil that leaks around um, and hot and, and from the steam pipes and everything. But I was able to hold 
you know, host three or four mechanics or, or electricians down there to, to teach. That's right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then we'd have to pause so someone could come by and take their, take their, um, their logs and look at, you know, you know, what pressure is this pump at and, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And we got some sideways glances for sure. <laughs> uh, I remember one time actually I was, um, I was in Nine Man, which is uh, one of the uh, rooms uh, that we sleep in. And it's dark and quiet and I was, I was meditating and, and, the messenger came around to, uh, if you don't, submarine life is so different. Right? <laughs> no privacy. And, and they come and wake you up at all hours of the night to sign something. Or, um, but the messenger comes in and he got scared and, and <laughs> ended up telling everyone in the control room that he had no idea what I was doing down there. Um, but it was my way of, of kind of uh, maintaining myself when when there was you know you're on an 18 hour day so so your sleep schedule's all off the you live and breathe just submarine life and work and and that can just be exhausting and so i i relied on this and so when i was looking at medical schools to apply to i looked at ones that actually had uh contemplative centers on their campus and um emory happened to be one of them and i remember in the application i wrote to to get in uh here that I don't know how closely the Center for Contemplative Sciences and the med school work together, but I'd like to work to bring them a little bit more closely. And when I got here during an orientation, they offered us a CBCT introduction, which was just wonderful. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so from there, I was like, well, this is what I came here to do. Uh, thank you for, for you know offering it to me. <laughs> so I took their foundations course, and then when the opportunity came to get certified as an instructor, I, I, I jumped on that. Um, and that just led to more digging into this idea of compassion and what it means. CBCT is, is cognitively based compassion training. It was developed here at Emory in 2004. And it was actually developed to address um, mental health issues in the undergraduate campus. Uh, Dr. Nagy is one of the first uh, Tibetan monks to have come over uh, when we started the Emory-Tibet partnership. And that has since morphed into the Center for Contemplative Sciences and Compassion-Based Ethics. And, and his uh, CBCT program is really a huge part of what made that metamorphosis possible. And since then, it's branched out into C-learning, uh, social, emotional, and ethical learning that is in all over the globe, really. Um, and then uh, the CREATE teacher residency is somewhat affiliated with it, where they work in, in helping teachers kind of uh, you know, work with the chaos of a classroom and work, especially now with our, with our social awakening, um, how can teachers work with students? How can they manage their own distress when trying to help students grapple with the, this upside down world that we're living in? Um, and so, so there's really been a lot of great initiatives that are coming out of that. Um, so that led me into these questions of, of what exactly, what is compassion? <laughs> and, 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 and how do we how do we actualize it? And and it's it's an ongoing uh, discovery process. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I actually answered your question there. <laughs> well, no, that's perfectly segue. Well, how do you feel like the ideas that you've learned about what compassion is and um, its importance? Uh, well, like how have they translated into okay, we know that we can. 
build more compassion if we foster more of a team partnership in the healthcare system? Like, is that yeah. kind of the idea? Yeah. How did it kind of translate into what you're doing now, this project yeah. that you're working on? Yeah, so uh, I struggled for a long time about, like, how do you actually present this to people in a way that, that you can present? You know, how do you give an elevator pitch on this? And um, I'm still working on that. But <laughs> but it, uh, through, so CBCT is broken up into eight modules, um, starting with nurturance. That was like foundational practice of just tapping into your own when you felt nurtured before and just remembering how important that is in your life to, to get you to where you are now. And that can be from, you know, if you happen to have a good relationship with your parents, then, then that, like, loving connection that they may have shown you in a, in a time that you remember that. Um, or um, or an animal, right, that, that just whenever you see them, they, they bring a sense of joy to you. Um, or if you're, uh, you know, if you're out hiking and, and you've been there, or even just like a comfortable sweater or that chair that just feels just right. Like whatever it is where you feel uh, cared for and safe and and um, and valued, respected, heard, like all, all these um, these things that, that help you to 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 feel whole and and complete and and ready, you know, to move on to the next thing instead of stuck in in uh, self-protect mode um, so so we would call that nurturance and the idea being that if we can just tap into to that that helps us regulate helps us feel a little more grounded helps us realize how valuable that that sensation is in the world not just for us but for anyone who lives in this world um, and so we start with with that grounding and then we we go into some more just kind of basic mindfulness uh, techniques. Uh, the second module we call um, uh, attentional stability training, and that's uh, picking an, uh, one object, whether it's your breath or just the, f the grounding sensations like the feeling of your shirt or the feeling of the floor beneath you or just like sounds around you. Think something that is there constantly that you don't have to work to keep there. Like, and, and then you practice uh, bringing your mind to that um, object and maintaining it there, and then noticing when your mind wanders and coming back to that object and noticing when you're coming back. And then, um, and so building our attentional stability. And we go into present moment awareness where we kind of let go of that one object and open our the aperture of your mind's eye to this like unfolding, everlasting, prevent, present moment. And just notice everything that it's arising, any thoughts, sensations, sounds again, um, uh, you know, frustrations, uh, and anything. And just, just trying to notice them without buying into them a little too much. Um, and so we would call that present moment of awareness. How can you be here fully now? without pushing anything away or excessively grasping for anything, including your breath, right? And can you just notice what's coming up? So the, those are kind of more classical mindfulness practices. And from there, uh, we go into self-compassion. Uh, and it's just this, one of the best exercises, I think, to demonstrate this is to have someone think of a friend or a close, close one 
who who comes and tells you i didn't live up to to my own expectations for myself you know i let myself down whether it was on an exam or something morally or or anything right that they come and tell you how how would you respond to them and we we notice that we're usually pretty caring and kind and 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 uh offer uh, you know this isn't the the end you're, you're going to keep going on like all these things and then we turn it around and say, okay, well, how do you talk to yourself in the same situation? And we find that we are often just the worst critics of ourselves, right? And we are not yeah. kind and we beat ourselves up. And Kristen Neff has really done a lot of great work in the world of uh, self-compassion and studying things that show when we are kind to ourselves, when we speak to ourselves kindly, we're actually more more likely to to overcome, to resolve to change and to and to atone or to to um, you know, say that we're sorry for, for whatever it is that we had done. And so this, we kind of start with this idea of self-kindness. And so when you're sitting there in this meditation, it is fundamentally a meditation practice, um, and you notice something come up that you're not proud of, how do you talk to yourself in that moment? And can we start practicing being kinder to ourselves? Mm-hmm. And there's many tools that we use for doing that. One of them is just recognizing that, like, we are not in control of anything. Right? We have a few things that we can do, but at the end of the day, nothing is 100% in our control. And so we, can we soften that blame that we're putting on ourselves for, for whatever it may be? Um, so, so self-compassion in that way, and then self-compassion in the way of this is a part of the human condition, and all those around me are kind of suffering from the same human condition. And, and can I realize that I'm not alone in the way that I'm treating myself, that I'm not alone in having performed poorly on this exam. Um, and, and that helps kind of bring this, this common humanity uh, idea in and, and, again, soften that, that self-criticism and bring a little more self-compassion. Then we take uh, the next several modules to, to build the inclusive nature of our compassion. Um, now that we are kind to ourselves, can we see that, that I, you know, like nothing is really within my control. I was born this way with, with some genes that lead me to, to believe certain things. I was raised in a certain household that led me to believe certain things. Um, and can I see that other people, every other person on this planet is in a, a similar boat, that they were born in a certain way, were raised with certain ideals, were sheltered from the world in some way to believe and, and think and, and experience certain things. And so if I f- harbor any malintention for someone, can I again soften that and just realize that, that it's not 100% in control? They, they may be operating on these automaticities as well mm-hmm. and, and that we're all subject to these biases that, that we're not proud of, um, but we have them, period. <laughs> so can we, can we again uh, soften that? So that's this inclusive nature. And then... Uh, and then we look at gratitude, looking at our like interdependence and systems thinking, um, and and then grow into into engaged compassion. So when I look at those eight modules, and I think how can we put that into a medical curriculum, I thought that we needed to start with nurturance, building a safe environment so our students always feel grounded and and capable, and that includes having the right mentors and the right coaches and having, you know, a safe space for. Uh, mental health check-ins and making sure that you have enough time to do all the things that you need to do. And if you have a doctor's appointment, making sure that you feel empowered to say, I'm not going to be there today because I have to go here and take care of myself. 
um, and making sure students really feel safe. And from that safe grounding, how can we grow in our inclusion of compassion for, for others? And, and so that's where I think these working with ancillary staff is a huge part of it, um, getting to know all the, the uh, helpers in the hospital um, so that we can see where we fit in the team and who we're relying on and making sure that we'd extend that same concern for them as we do for our patients and hopefully for ourselves. Um, and, uh, and then now that we are growing in this inclusive nature, and I think that also includes a lot of, I'm on the, uh, the diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, new initiative that started at the med school. And they're working on, on things, uh, like moving from a bystander to an upstander. How can you empower students to feel, to notice when there are transgressions going on and actually to intervene? Uh, and then there's this engagement component that includes this, you know, upstander. Uh, but then also coming, I think we don't have enough contact with our senior medical students as a first and second year. I came in and, and didn't know any of my upperclassmen really, except for a few who came in and talked about, you know, what books to buy. Um, and then I barely know any of the the underclassmen uh, and women who, I, except for those that I... I've taught CBCT too, or I, I've lectured a couple times for some of their ethics classes. Um, but, but I think we need to break down those barriers a little bit so that we can, again, get some of that mentorship and coaching from those who have been through this. They, um, instead of just like this, this pump that we're in of like, as soon as you get here, you're on your own, you got to go through just to get to the other end. And now you're a resident and you're going to be told the same thing. Like you just got to go through and get to the end. So at some point we got to like pause check back in with, with why we came here and and uh, I, I don't know <laughs> hopefully this helps do that <laughs> yeah. definitely yeah it seems like compassion and mindfulness has really like helped you like throughout medical school can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of discovered compassion-based meditation mindfulness and how has it guided your path towards medicine as a pre-medical student and while you were in the Navy? Yeah, um, so I, uh, I had this interesting introduction to yoga um, just through a friend who told me to go check out a class on campus. And uh, I used to be a swimmer, and I think something about that link with the breath had somehow I had embodied it without really knowing it. And then I got to college, and college was a whole other story, and I stopped swimming, and, and it wasn't until my junior year that I took a yoga class. And I still remember like laying in that first shavasana at the end of, of just where they said, let go of everything else and just breathe. And it was really like coming home after a long break of just like, oh, there's something special about checking in with, with the breath here. Um, and that started this journey of, of discovery of yoga, which led to more self-discovery. Um, and then when I was in my um, in Charleston doing a nuclear power school, I you're in a room with only one window and you're there for 12 hours a day just learning by PowerPoint and tech manuals. And I, uh, I would wake up before the sun came up, would go into this building would leave after the sun went down and then would go to a hot yoga studio mm -hmm. and do an hour to 90 minutes of yoga, go home, eat, 
go to bed and do it all over again. And so that routine of going to this yoga every day was really, it like transformed my life. Uh, and then when I was in um, Saratoga Springs for a nuclear power school or nuclear propulsion training, I, uh, I got certified as a yoga instructor and mostly for myself, just like deepen my own practice and learn a little bit more. And I was really grateful that I, I had those skills to then teach the sailors down underwater. And, um, and I, like all this time, I was like, oh, I know meditation is something I should be doing too and would try and I'd meditate for two days and then never again for a month, you know, and try and, oh, I did it for a week this time and then not for six months, you know. And, and it wasn't until I was in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and a yoga teacher there gave this really uh, great just introduction to meditation class. That was, she just broke it down so simply and, and just said, we're, ju we're just going to sit, <laughs> we're going to follow our breath, and, and we're going to come back. And if you feel an itch, this was the first person who ever, like I had itches and pains all the time and I didn't know what to do. And she's, she was the first one to say, if you have an itch, you can scratch it. <laughs> right? but, really nice thing. Yeah. She's like, but do it mindfully, right? So if you're sitting there, you notice the itch. First, just see if it goes away. And come back to whatever your point of focus is. If it doesn't get away and still starts to bother you, then notice what it feels like to lift your hand up and bring it. And then notice the relief that comes when you actually do that scratch. And then as you bring your hand back down, notice as it comes down and where it lands. And then see again how you feel after you've scratched this itch. And I was like, oh, that's, that's meditation. That just like maintaining that awareness throughout whatever you're doing. Um, and so then that was when I started a daily practice. And it was just 12 minutes a day every morning of, of sitting. And I had a mantra of let go. There's just so much I was sitting with as I was. We had moved to Norfolk for a shipyard. So my submarine ended up getting turned into a training platform. Uh, so we were in shipyard. That's a whole nother, uh, it's a whole nother experience to submarine life. Um, uh, and I, I, I just started relying on this meditation practice for, for everything that was going on as I was applying to, to medical school and, um, and just grew from there. And, as I was getting out of the Navy, I, I had learned more about meditation by that point, decided I, w I wanted to go do a uh, meditation retreat. And I also had an opportunity to work at the uh, Portsmouth Naval Medical Center teaching um, uh, yoga and meditation to the mental health directorate. And this was a program aimed for sailors who had experienced some traumatic event in their life, um, like a helicopter had crashed on a ship, um, someone's family member had passed away, really the gamut of, of things, and they just needed a break from, from work. And so we'd have them come to the hospital for a week. Uh, actually ended up being nine days as it bookended the weekends. And their only job was to show up and to learn some CBT techniques and to take this yoga class and learn a little bit me about meditation and really just just come back to themselves and not have to work long hours in this environment that, that may have been the cause of the trauma. And um, 
And so I got to teach there, and then I got to also teach the staff as a burnout prevention um, uh, initiative. Uh, and so that, again, deepened that practice as I, as I read through all the, the yoga sutras and developed my own meditation program. Uh, it was really, I still have some of those flyers that I used. It was, it was pretty funny. Uh, but just some of, the, some of the basics, again, that I had appreciated from, from that yoga teacher. Uh, Diane Malaspina. Uh, she used to be in Norfolk. I don't know if she's still there. Um, and and then I went and did a as I as soon as I got out of the Navy, I moved all of my stuff down to Atlanta, put it in a storage unit, and then flew up to Toronto. Did a ten day meditation retreat, biked around Lake Ontario, met my brother in um, in Buffalo, New York. And then uh, travel a little bit more before starting medical school. That was kind of my my freedom tour, and um, uh, and then I got here and and was introduced to CBCT. And I was like, oh, you can actually link meditation with compassion, and this cognitively based compassion training is very much about like analyzing our biases and our beliefs of the world and our understanding of how we operate. Um, to then say, how can I be more compassionate towards myself? How can I be more compassionate towards others? Uh, yeah. So um, I think compassion is this like kind of buzzword and in the field of medicine. Um, I think it's really amazing how much you um, really dive deep into what it means to be compassionate. Um, and, you, and you found that it's not always directed towards um, other people. There's also a self aspect um, to compassion um, can you talk a little bit about the the kind of benefits that that you gain um, through compassion training? I know you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned um, helping like avoid burnout mm -hmm. um, and things like that. And any advice you might have to people, um, so any pre med students who might be going through this, or medical students, um, how to kind of pull upon that that compassion and mindfulness um, to pre prevent some of those common um, pitfalls. Yeah, yeah, um, man, I, I've been just really baffled by how poorly we take care of medical students and residents and attendings and other allied health professionals, despite being like the supposed experts on health and wellness. Um, and so I think just. Just understand that first and foremost, as as a pre-med student, as someone applying into medical school, uh, just understand that it's gonna be like any other big business, big organization, that, that there are really some incredible shining lights, individuals out there who, who truly do um, uh, find the capacity to do all the things that they have to do in their work and then also extend just so much care, kindness, and compassion to those around them. Mm -hmm. And there are others who are just so overwhelmed with the work that their bandwidth for, for those around them is, is just shortened. Um, and so, so I think one of the things that, that is helpful, and I've, I've mostly learned this through CBCT, is just this understanding of, of self-compassion that we are not 100% in control of anything. And so when you're, when you're studying for the MCAT, right, and, and really trying to go through this process 
of, of amassing all this knowledge um, for a test that that is it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to realize that that it's not all on you. That you have learned certain things through your through your schooling that that will either help or or not for the MCAT. That you could work tirelessly to learn everything that you need to know for the MCAT and still not know it all. That you could feel that you're the most prepared for the MCAT, but they could still put random questions on there that you'd never seen before. And so to not beat yourself up uh, about that and to kind of offer yourself a little bit of grace. It's not to say don't try hard, right? It's not to say give up and like whatever happens, happens. <laughs> but just just know that all this work you're putting in is so that you can learn this stuff. And, and it's uh, to me, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, it can get frustrating to have to learn it over and over again. But but it is it's fascinating. It's how how biology works and and makes me be able to sit here and have this conversation with you. Um, and so learn it for the sake of of learning it. And and when you're when you're getting tired, check in. Be like, do I need to take a break right now? Like maybe maybe you do. And then give yourself the space to take that break. And have you noticed that you're anxious? Is it because you you don't feel that you've done enough work, well, then maybe that'll give you a little extra motivation to get a little work done. Like, take advantage of that that anxiety to, but don't let it overwhelm you. Right? And so, so I think that's one of the things that's been really helpful. Is just if I didn't get as good of a grade on an exam as I wanted to, to like understand, like, okay, it's not all on me. Like, I, I let me soften a little bit of that self criticism. Um, and uh, and okay, I'm gonna try I'll try again next time. Um, and then I mentioned this in the class the other day. Someone asked about like when you're stuck behind the electronic health record and it's becoming overburdened. Like how do you uh, how do you not become overwhelmed by that frustration? And with that, um, again, it's it's kind of about this this outward looking of of I am here writing this note. And as med students, we really don't have to do that much on the electronic health record which is something I think we need to change. I think we need more training on that before we get there, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, it's, again, seeing that the reason I'm putting in all this work for this note is for the patient on the other side. That can be a little more difficult when we look at the, the system of healthcare and recognize that there's a lot of, like, a lot of the reason we're doing this is for the liability aspect of healthcare. It's for the insurance companies, and so, so that can be a struggle. But if I, if I, part of this mindfulness is not just, um, just you know, always staying uh, in the present moment, but also kind of asking myself what what will serve, what will serve me, what will serve others, and if becoming overwhelmed by the this broken system of healthcare. It's not going to help me in the moment of writing a note. Right. It might help me when I'm, you know, writing a policy paper or something. Um, but so to say that's not serving me right now. I'm going to let that go. What will serve is to hold on to the fact that at the other end of this record is a phlebotomist who's actually going to go draw the labs. So let me remember that individual. And there is a patient on the other end that is going to get the medicine that they need because I'm writing this note or get the PT that they need because I'm putting in this order. Um, and just just keep coming back to that when everything else seems frustrating. And 
and and what we see is I feel like it, it just kind of, I feel my shoulders like loosen a little bit my the tightness in my chest softens and it 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 helps me to to remember there is a reason and a purpose behind all of this uh, and then if we look at like the neuroscience behind it we see that uh, that there's actually when you tap into this compassion and and the the official definition in, in science of compassion is just this warm-hearted concern that unfolds when we witness the suffering of someone and the the motivation to alleviate that suffering and so like it actually is associated with pro-social motivation and positive reward in our brain um and so it's uh it, it's not just you know, hubbubaloo, hubba but we can actually see <laughs> in the labs that different areas of your brain light up when you when you tap into this idea of concern for someone else. Um, and and not only that, like there's there's boosts to your immune system. There's uh, yeah. So I hope that answers uh, the yeah. question. Thank you so much. Um, I also wanted to touch back uh, on something we talked yeah. about a little bit before about how um, you know, the, the hectic life um, on a submarine, yeah. and you also mentioned kind of the hectic life um, as a physician. Um, how has the schedule um, you know, from, from the boat like, helped prepare you? Um, I know I have a friend who yeah. used to work on a nuclear sub, and he said that they did like a 16-hour on, 8-hour off schedule, mm. but it might be changed. Can you talk a little bit about that um, and how you think it's prepared you for the field of medicine? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, yeah, they've recently changed it. We used to operate on, on an 18-hour day. And so as soon as you close the hatch to a submarine, you switch the clocks to whatever ultimate destination you're going to be in. And you you start operating in six-hour shifts. So six hours of watch, six hours off watch where you, you clean, you do maintenance, you, um, you do study, have a lecture, and then six hours of sleep. Um, and then start it all over again. Um, and I think uh, there's something about when you go to, even if you're in port, we don't actually. Okay, cool. All right. Um, so we had a little bit of technical difficulties there, but we'll jump right back into question um, about how the, um, the schedule on the submarine kind of the unique schedule might may have prepared you for medicine and the uh, demands of that as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was talking uh, about the underwaist schedule and when we close the hatch we I mean you live and breathe your work and that's just it, that is the submarine life uh, but even when we're in port there's something about uh, you have to go through you know you have to get on base first so you show your ID card and now you're through one gate and then to get to the uh, submarine base you have to go through another gate one that you can't bring your phone through Sometimes you can, and then you have to leave your phone at the um, before you actually climb onto the submarine. And so leaving that up topside. And so once you get onto the submarine, you're kind of just there, and you let the whole outside world go, and you're just doing what you need to do uh, for for the submarine and for for your your shipmates and sailors. And so I think that was helpful, and that really I, I hope that it is the case that as I
cross the threshold into the hospital or wherever I'm practicing, I can kind of forget the other things that are going on. You know, if I need to get my oil changed or, mm. you know, I need to go change my tires or, or I need to go grocery shopping, whatever it is, I hope that I can leave all of that at the door and just kind of give myself to the hospital and be there for the patients and my teammates and, and whatever is needed. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Amazing. So just to sort of close out this episode, is there any advice you have for any students who are currently on the pre-med track or who may already be on that journey in med school? Yeah, I think um, it's hard to know what it actually means to practice medicine. And I, I had, I thought, you know, as a first and second year student, I was getting the idea. And then I actually went into clerkship years and I was on, in the hospitals and I was talking to patients and I was writing notes and, and calling social workers. And, and I just had a much more clear idea of what it means to actually be a doctor. And I shared this with our, my small group advisor, a, a mentor, and he was like, that's exactly right. And still, I didn't know what it meant until mm -hmm. I became a resident. Uh, and then, you know, and then again, once I became an attendant, because each, you know, you kind of take on more responsibility along each step. So all that's to say is I remember when I was applying to med school, you know, I had this ideal of being on the other side of medical school and being a doctor. And that's why I was going through all this work. And it really, I, I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I, I thought I did and I had this ideal. Um, so I think like tap into what is it that you wanna be on the other side of your training? Like, like what do you wanna wake up in the morning and go do? Um, and though it may not be entirely accurate for what a, a physician actually does when they wake up and go into the hospital or, or do their thing, um, just kind of like, like why? Mm. You know, that this is what I want to do, and then ask yourself why. Um, is it for the patients? Is it is it for the fame? Is it for the money? Right? And just kind of really ask yourself that, um, and then know that 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 can be the sustaining um, motivation to get you through the onslaught of studying for the MCAT and taking the MCAT and doing the application process. That's a nightmare. And, um, and doing secondary applications as they come in and mm. going and interviewing. And then as I'm learning now, again, when you apply to residency, right, and, and all the interviews that you have to do and, and all the money you have to spend just to get into this and all the money you have to spend to complete this, if, if it isn't, solid in you why you're doing it, I think it, it would be so much harder to actually stay the course and keep doing it. Uh, so I think really asking yourself that question and, and, and know that it may change over time, and that's, that's fine, right? As, especially as your idea um, of what it means to practice solidifies and, and becomes more clear. Um, but it, it's not an easy process, and it's not a cheap process. And um, so, so you gotta have something to to fall back on as to why why you're doing all this. 
Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much, Charlie. Yeah. Um, your story um, from the Navy to medical school, how you've implemented you know, yoga, um, meditation, um, CBCT, it's all been extremely helpful and, and illuminating. Um, can you briefly um, just let us um, let anyone who might be listening who could be interested in CBT, will you let them know um, how they might be able to get involved in that going forward? Yeah, if you go to uh, compassion.emory.edu, you'll get to the, the website for the Center for Contemplative Sciences. I think they're starting to call it the Compassion Center now because it's a mouthful otherwise. <laughs> um, but there they have um, access to all the the C-learning and CBCT and other programs going on. If you click on the CBCT link, um, they'll have upcoming courses and, and things like that. And I, it's my understanding that they offer free courses to, to all students. So if you get to a place where you have to pay, um, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like such an amazing resource. Thank you for sharing. Um, and we'll just close off with the question we'd like to end each podcast episode on, which is what resources did you use during your own pathway to medicine? And what would you recommend for pre-health students mm -hmm. kind of as they explore different pre-health careers and try to find which one fits their passion? Yeah, um, so I'll tell you, I, I didn't get into med school the first time I applied, and um, <laughs> I was on the submarine, and we were in the middle of an evolution of, uh, of maintenance, and so I, I remember it was a long, month-long uh, uh, event we were doing, and I still remember going in, giving an order to raise the pressure in the plant, and then we'd have to hold it there for a while, so then I'd step outside, and I'd go s open up my Kaplan book. <laughs> and <study laughs> and then go back in and and I didn't do too well uh, on that but I just I just used Kaplan uh, and self-study uh, and then I took the full Kaplan course uh, which again isn't cheap and mm -hmm. comes with a lot of privilege to have access to that but I took the time to actually dedicate to a Kaplan course for the MCAT and that drastically improved my MCAT scores uh, and then I got into medical school so that was really helpful for me. Thank you so much again for coming. Um, for anyone who wants to connect with you, where can they find you? What yeah. platforms do you use? <laughs> I've, I've tried to stay away from the social media. Mm -hmm. um, Probably a good choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, please email me if you have any questions. Uh, my email is clane, C-L-A-N-E 9 at emory.edu. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably the best way. Well, thank you again. Thank you for everyone for listening to our second episode of Fireside Chats. Hopefully we will continue this podcast. Um, but thank you for being our first non-pre-health <laughs> advising <laughs> office guest. <laughs> you were absolutely amazing. Well, thanks for having me. This is really <laughs> great. I, I hope I've helped a little bit. And, um, yeah, this is just inspiring to see you guys doing these conversations and, and helping other students. I think that's 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 a big part of also what I'm working on, right? Mm -hmm. Helping one another. Mm -hmm. You guys are a prime example of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.